You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Good morning. If you're joining us online, we're glad you're with us. So I've been sharing with our staff a little bit that I've been looking forward to this series. This is the book of Acts. If you really want to get as much as possible out of the series, I would encourage you to read the book of Acts in one sitting. And if you do it this week, it's going to set you up well for the weeks to come. It'd probably take you an hour, hour and a half to do that. So just give up one or two episodes of The Bachelor or Yellowstone or whatever is your thing. And <clears throat> join God in the book of Acts. So we are celebrating Hope's 25th year anniversary this year, particularly focusing on that in October. But it has been on my mind a bit that we have the privilege of celebrating God's faithfulness over 25 years from the time he started this church. And in some ways, I think of this then as kind of the signature series of the 25th year anniversary as we move through the book of Acts. And we have these beautiful pictures of the church that is brought into life and as it spreads the witness of Christ all around the world. Okay, so we're in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The writer of the book of Acts is Luke, same writer of the Gospel of Luke. He's a medical doctor. He's written this book for the benefit, particularly, of a man named Theophilus, who we don't know too much about in the Bible. But that's enough ground laying for the moment. Here we go. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Okay, so let me try to see if I can thread some symmetry together because I think this too is foundational to how we move through the book of Acts. The book of Acts, you could say, is the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, which then becomes the Acts of the Apostles, which becomes the Acts and actions of the church. The central player in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. Even though you're going to see a lot of people mentioned and their adventures and their stories are going to be full of lots of different experiences, the central player in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. So here's the symmetry. 
The Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. He raised Christ to life. Next step, he will raise the church to life to witness to Christ who he raised to life. So he raised Christ to life. He raises the church to life to witness to Christ he raised to life. And then through the witness of the church, he raises people to life in the risen Christ. So you see it, these three all have this thread of the Holy Spirit's work of raising to life. Okay, what we're going to see here is that the primary work of the church is to witness to Christ. It's the primary work. Sometimes we can outfancy ourselves, out-sophisticate ourselves, outdo ourselves, confuse ourselves, get ourselves distracted. The primary work of the church is to witness to Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been in the church for most of your life, you're used to church talk. But when these witnesses were telling people in the world about this man, Jesus, this was revolutionary news. And frankly, in a culture like ours, that has now become a much, much, much more secular culture, preaching about Jesus, teaching, telling, witnessing, is revolutionary news again. And so the church is called to express and to witness to Jesus. It's our primary work. And it is the work that the Holy Spirit accompanies, if you could say it. Okay, we witness to Christ all that Jesus began to do. Isn't it fascinating in verse one? In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do, right? His former book is the Gospel of Luke. And if you've read the Gospels, I wonder if when you read them and when you finished the last chapter of a Gospel, you thought, that is so cool to read about what Jesus began to do. Most of us read the Gospels and we're like, well, there's the story of Jesus. No, the Gospel writers say there's the beginning of the story of Jesus. Mark starts his gospel, Mark 1.1, says this is the good news of the beginning of Jesus Christ. So we're getting this very clear picture, like we think we're like here where the full story is out. No, no, no. What the gospel writers say is this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus. So I don't know about you, but I'm pretty pumped to find out what the ongoing big story of Jesus is. And all of this leans us in anticipation of that big story. And that big story, of course, is when he returns. Notice that it says he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Verse 3. Okay, so this is Jesus with the disciples. 40 days after he was raised, for 40 days, he meets with them. They see him, they touch him, they eat with him, they pray with him. They are together with him. They hug, they shake hands. They have many convincing proofs that he is alive. Note the phrase, many convincing proofs. In other words, it's really serious to God that the disciples understand this is true. That this is not a legend, it's not a fable, it's not something we're playing around with. It's not an old wives' tale, it's not Greek mythology. It's true events, a true person in a true time and place in history. Many convincing proofs that he was alive. Peter Walker speaks about the witness of the New Testament believers, and he says this, to those who suggest Christ and Christianity were legend, we must regard the to the death witness of the early believers. Were they really prepared to suffer and die for a legend or a lie? We may also, with good reason, ask, if they were intent on creating a convincing legend, why on earth did they invent this story about the risen Jesus being first seen by women? 
when for many of their Jewish hearers, the testimony of a woman would almost automatically be dismissed. The whole thing bristles with improbabilities. And so we get this picture of many convincing proofs, a convinced belief in who Jesus is. So there's a fun story about way back in the 1700s in England, a minister named George Whitfield. He was a well-known evangelist in England back in the 1700s. His favorite place to share the gospel was with coal miners, who he felt were a neglected population in England. And he would go to the coal mines and he would preach and teach them about Christ at 5 a.m. before they started work in the coal mines. And you can read the history, it's fascinating. Thousands and thousands of coal miners would come to hear Whitfield speak. And thousands gave their lives to Christ. There's beautiful stories about coal miners who had tracks of tears down through the coal dust on their face as they began to come to know Christ for real. So cut to David Hume, who was a secular philosopher in England at that time, was an atheist. He did not have a faith in Christ. Well, lo and behold, one morning, David Hume was seen walking in the crowd of people that were going to go hear George Whitfield preach. And somebody said, I recognize you. I didn't think you believed any of this. He said, I don't believe any of this, but Mr. Whitfield does, and it makes him worth hearing. So many convincing proofs that they were alive. The church is the people that believe on conviction and faith that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world. And we'll go into this a little bit further in a moment. Okay, so then he goes on to say in verse, in verse 6, he's telling them about this. And then they gathered around him and they asked him, isn't it interesting? It's as though he's talking to them. And yet at verse 6, it says, when they heard something, they like gathered around him. Sort of like they're standing here and he's talking to them. And then something triggers and makes them like go, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to get close to him and ask some questions about this. So verse 6, they gathered around him and they said, Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We just can't help ourselves. You see, what Jesus is saying is, I've been raised, the Holy Spirit is going to come give you power to be my witnesses. That's what he's basically saying to them. And they say, oh, but wait, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel to us? You may know this, but woven all through the anticipating beliefs in Jewish religion was that their Messiah would come as a political victor that he would give them a political and governing victory so that they would be number one, out with the Romans, out with this problem with this foreign occupation. We're going to get the goods. In other words, it's going to be about us. We're going to get the goods. So Jesus is talking over here saying, you'll be my witnesses. They're like, well, hold that thought, Jesus. Are you going to give us the goods now? It's such a common error for us in our faith when Jesus is saying what we're doing is being his witnesses and we're saying, are you going to give us the goods? It's so easy to make these kinds of mistakes. And so as Jesus goes on to speak to them, he says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority. Okay, and then verse 8 is the payload in the entire thing. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Verse 8 is where all the meat and potatoes are in this. You could say that the entire book of Acts is the story of verse 8 as it rolls out. 
It's the story of witnessing to Christ as the church begins to come alive and bring the witness here, there, and everywhere. But we are prone to make serious mistakes when it comes to this core work that we're called to do. Remember? Back to the beginning, the primary work of the church is to witness to Christ. Like, we could just say that a bunch of times. The primary work of the church is to witness to Jesus Christ. But we are so prone to make mistakes and lose our way. I'm going to offer you what I think are five common mistakes. They're not the only ones, but they're five that we are prone to make. The first one, Jesus is describing this dynamic, organic, witnessing movement of people here, there, and everywhere telling about him. We are prone to turn this witnessing movement into a bureaucratic institution. And we can see this, right, in the world. Of course, any organization has to have structures. But what happens in time is the structures become the main focal point of attention. And the main reason the structures were started to begin with gets jettisoned because the energy is on the structures and the bureaucracies. Okay, mistake number one. We are prone to turning this witnessing movement into a bureaucratic institution. Many of us, frankly, feel much more comfortable and safer and much more like we get it and know what to do if we're given policies and structures and all that kind of stuff. Mistake number one, a witnessing movement to a bureaucratic institution. Mistake number two, you remember who Jesus called to be his disciples? Twelve super incredibly ordinary, no big deal guys. Mistake number two, the leaders in the movement are going to want to be recognized for their religious importance. And in doing that, you're going to create a separation of the leaders and the movement as though the leaders are somehow holy, special people that are different than the rest of everybody else. It's a sure way to suck the life right out of the whole endeavor. You remember that Jesus indicted the Pharisees frequently. He said, you love to be seen on the street corners and be recognized as super important people. It's easy to make this mistake, to put the leaders in some sort of position. And the leaders foment this mistake. They want the recognition. And so we do all kinds of fancy robes and garb and all kinds of stuff, say, look how important I am. Look how religiously important I am. When in reality, I think Jesus would say, you remember, I picked 12 really ordinary guys. I mean, in modern vernacular, these guys were in denim shorts and T-shirts when I called them. So you don't need to go put on all kinds of fancy stuff and try to look important. Witness to me here, there, and everywhere. It was 12 ordinary guys. Okay, the next one is, so we tend to make the witnessing outward movement of the church. Inside, we tend to ask this question, is this church serving my desires? Okay, now, all of us have learned enough, probably if you've been around church long enough, you've learned that you would never say that publicly, but internally you're processing and calculating that all the time. Is this church giving me what I want? As though the church is a religious customer service provider to the already committed. When the church is thinking that way, we're going to make drastic mistakes and miss the foundational call of the empowering power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses, right? So the question in the church is not... How do we like church? The question is, how does God like how we're doing the church? The question when we're in a worship service is not, how did I like worship? It's, how did God like my worship? So we very easily contort this to not, are we serving God's desires, but is this church serving my desires? 
Mistake number four, it becomes very easy to get distracted to the issues around us. And some of them are very important, but they're not the primary call of the work of the church. And when we begin to bleed into getting overly devoted to these issues around us, we begin to lose the witnessing power and potency of the life of the church. That was the original ignition and the original job description for the life of the church. And then the last one, as we begin to do that, number five, the church becomes a body of people that seek to blend in with the surrounding culture to achieve the surrounding culture's acceptance. In other words, to be liked by the culture, to not be thought of as weirdos or different. And this, of course, is a challenge. I talked about it last week with the salt and light distinction within a larger culture. Okay, so mistake number one, turn a witnessing movement to your bureaucratic institution. Number two, leaders looking for all kinds of religious recognition. Number three, is the church serving my desires as compared to are we serving God's desires? Number four, we get distracted to the issues that are out there and we lose the focus of our mission. And number five, we begin to blend in to please the surrounding culture so they'll like us. The church is called in by the power of the Holy Spirit to witness to Jesus. This is the primary work of the church. Years ago, I heard this quote, and I've shared it with our staff a lot because I love it so much. The quote is, God does not have a mission for his church. God has a church for his mission. In other words, the church isn't there and God said, oh, let's whiteboard a mission statement and see if we can come up for something with something for you to do. God has a passionate heart to reach all peoples and all nations of the world, so he brings the church into existence to accomplish that passionate work of his heart. And this passionate calling will go to as many people as possible. Note that he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That strikes me as very consistent with as many people as possible. Churches, when we begin to arc into, do I like it? Is it serving my interests? What happens is we settle in, we make our friends, we get to know it, it's familiar. And if you have a bunch of new people coming in, then it's like, oh, it's not familiar anymore, and I don't know everybody anymore. And so people don't like it, and so they get off, or they at least kind of like getting off the elevator, actually or figuratively. But I don't see any place in the Bible that gives us that option. Everything I see in the Bible about what it means to be the vital, Holy Spirit-filled, witnessing church is that you are passionate about reaching as many people as possible. And some people might say, well, what happens if it gets really big? Well, we'll have to figure out what to do if it gets really big. But if we don't do that, and the church is no longer interested in caring about the people God wants to reach and loving them in, church is going to get really small real quick. I'd rather have the really big problems than the really small problems. As many people as possible, there's no doubt in my mind that this is central to the book of Acts. Okay, so the main point is that we witness to Jesus. This is what we do. We keep talking and telling and explaining and teaching about who Jesus Christ is. It's not that fancy, really. I mean, it's quite simple. We keep talking, telling, teaching, sharing about who Jesus is in natural relational ways. Not manipulative, pain-in-the-neck ways, natural relational ways. Some people will respond and be interested, and some people won't. And that's been the story of the church from day one. The natural telling teaching about the person of Jesus. In those days, the Jewish people lived with a tribal mindset. The 12 tribes of Israel, you may know from the Old Testament, very much the mindset. The tribes, the tribes, the tribes. In a sense... The church becomes the new tribe, the tribe of Jesus. 
the tribe of the people whose lives have been changed as they have come to say yes to Jesus and live in a reconciled relationship with God through Christ. In other words, telling about Jesus is our tribal story, and it's what we do here, there, and everywhere all the time. Not inelegantly, not manipulatively, not pain in the neckly, but organically, relationally, naturally. In the let your spiritual life be natural and let your natural life be spiritual kind of way. In other words, it makes sense relationally with the people you have relationships with. Max Dupree is a business writer. He writes books about corporate cultures. He says every company has tribal stories. Though there may be only a few tribal storytellers, it's everyone's job to see that things as unimportant as manuals and light bulbs don't replace them. In other words, the tribal stories become our identity and they become our ignition. And in the church, the tribal story is telling the story of who Jesus is. And it is the requirement of all of us to make sure other stuff that doesn't matter very much doesn't become number one. And churches are famous for doing this, for making the unimportant the important, for majoring on the minors, whatever metaphoric phrase you want to use. Churches are famous for doing this. So what do we do? We respond to these words of Jesus. Verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So Jerusalem, that's where they are. That's the seat of Israel's identity and history. And it's also where they are at the moment. So what he's saying is here, right here. So for us, that's Richmond. So we will be his witnesses in Richmond. And then Judea is the next spreading circle. Samaria is the people you don't like. And then to the ends of the earth, as far as you can possibly go. In terms of using the word mission, if we want to talk about the mission of the church, or for some of you who have been around the church for a long time, missions, people often say, why do we keep going outward when there are problems here? Because we do our best to responsibly engage the problems here, but if we said we're not going outward until every problem here is solved, guess what? We're not going outward. So we go to the ends of the earth because we go as far as we possibly can go. So in Matthew 28, we have these words from Jesus. Jesus came to the disciples and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The word there is ethnos, ethnicities, all ethnic groups in the world. That skin colors, cultures, backgrounds. It would have been more different people groups to the mind of the original hearers than it would have been the way we look at a world map and see the different colors in the geographic lines and say, where's this country, where's that country? Every single people group on earth is what he means. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the end of the age. What I love about the, well, there's a lot I love about the Bible, but one of the things I love about the Bible is the continuity between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament activity. So Jesus here says to the church, go take this to all the nations of the world. My favorite of the Old Testament prophets is Isaiah. He's kind of the visionary prophet. So here is this prophecy from Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 2. I love this phrase. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains, and it'll be exalted among the hills, and all nations will stream to it. All nations will stream to God. And why would all nations stream to God? When Isaiah said this, it would have been very hard to have any sense for a hearer to understand how that'll happen. 
But once we see the rollout, and then when Jesus comes into the world, gives his life, and is raised, and then calls the witnessing church into action to go to all nations, now you begin to see how Isaiah's vision 700 years prior will be fulfilled. And one of the important reasons will be because the church will take its work seriously. God doesn't have a mission for his church. God has a church for his mission. So here's what we do. Notice that in verse 8, it says, you'll be my witnesses. And then it says in verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. You know what that means, right? These are the last words of Jesus in person. In verse 8, these are Jesus Christ's last words in person when he was on the earth. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Last words matter, right? We all talk about this. If you were ever with somebody when they're on their deathbed and they said something as their last words, they weigh a thousand times more than almost anything we've ever heard from them. Jesus' last words, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then he's taken up before their very eyes. The book of Acts is about verse 8. The whole rollout in the whole book is about verse 8. In other words, this is the church alive. So let's get down to the bottom line of what is this witnessing? It has two hands. It has, it has the telling and the inviting. The witnessing to Jesus always has two hands. You could call it the two hands of the witness. We tell and we invite. We tell and we invite. What's the telling? The telling is this simple telling about who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He demonstrated the kingdom of God. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he's coming again in glory. That is my simple version of all the church's creeds about who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He demonstrated the kingdom. He died on a cross. He's raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he's coming again in glory. That's the telling and the teaching part. And then there's the inviting part. Once somebody hears that, what do we do? We are all invited to repent of our sin, to receive him with a yes of personal faith, and then enter into the new life that this Holy Spirit has for us. New identity with new forgiveness, new adoption into God's family, new joy, new love, new hope, and heaven as our home. So the witnessing church is doing the two hands, the teaching and the inviting, the teaching and the inviting. See, witnesses are the people who have seen Christ, experienced Christ, believe in Christ, and then they live like it. And that's a really important thing, isn't it? These witnesses are people who believe in Christ, and then they live like they believe in Christ. Calvin Rowe has written a cool little book called Christianity's Surprise. I'm still working through it. It's very chewy, but it's short. You can do it. So, he says what the story of everything required. He uses this phrase, the story of everything, to describe, in essence, the life of Christ. He says what the story of everything thus required at a very deep level was the unity between claiming to be disciples of Jesus Christ and behaving in accordance with his claim. Right? In other words, what you believe and how you live match up. They make sense. It's when they match up that people's attention will be piqued. When those two things don't match up, nobody's going to give a second look or care two bits about it. But when those two match up, people are seeing something that's really different about those people, the church. 
What does it take to be the church alive? It takes each of us. Here's a funny thing that I think happens with church life. Two little things. One, I think many of us believe it, but kind of like we believe that George Washington cut down a cherry tree. Like, yes, we believe it, but it just feels like old stories. And may the Holy Spirit give us this fresh ignition of the current vital hope in Christ. And then secondly, I think what happens sometimes is that we don't actually think that we are the church. What do I mean by that? You can just hear it the way we talk about it, right? We're like, okay, I believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you're, you are the church. But most of us will talk about the church as though the church is other than us, like it's that organization. And when we say things like, well, the problem with the church is, and I get it, the church has plenty of problems. You ready for this? The problem with the church is me, and the problem with the church is you. That's the problem with the church. In other words, when we say, well, this is why I don't do church, because, you know, I don't, I don't like those people. Okay, well, then the problem is your arrogance that you can't put yourself in the family with those people. So now we've got, like, nowhere to hide. Like, the light of the Holy Spirit catches us no matter where we are. The point I'm making is, you are the church, and I am the church. And the church is only as alive and vital as you and I are alive and vital. The church is only making a difference in the world as much as you and I are making a difference in the world. The church is only as generous with its outreach and its giving as you and I are generous with our outreach and our giving. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, I'm just trying to diagnose this funny thing that I think we all kind of live with. Like, yes, we're the church, but not really because they're the church or the clergy are the church or something like that. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what we're doing is we're waiting and witnessing. We're waiting and witnessing. You know it's really hard to do for a really long time? It's really hard to wait for something for a really long time. And I think we should just admit this. Like, I, I want to say this to Jesus. Jesus, your church has been waiting for you to return in glory for 2,000 years. It's a really long time to wait like I'm going to educate Jesus about time. And then, but, but it really is hard to live with an expectant, anticipatory, hopeful waiting for a really long time. But that's what we're being called to do. So what do we do as a church? It's not a waiting like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how long it's been. It's more of an anticipating waiting. Because he gave them many convincing proofs that he is alive. And when he went up into heaven, these two angelic beings said... He's coming back exactly the way you just saw him go. You can bet on it. You don't have to worry about it. You can know it's going to be, it's true. So what we do is we anticipate that return. And what do we do while we anticipate? We witness, we witness, we witness to Christ. John Stott said, the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. He also said, the church exists for mission as a fire exists for burning. From the very earliest days at Hope, we have always been praying for the people that are not yet here, the people we have not yet met, the people who God is drawing to life in Christ. And may God use us and have that heart that this would be a place of witnessing to Christ. Because, as C.S. Lewis said it, 
The church exists for nothing else but to draw people into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we deeply desire the filling of your spirit, the ignition of your spirit, the witnessing power of your spirit, the joy, the life, the love that is the overflow from your throne of grace. Lord God, would you forgive us for the ways that we've been lazy, taken much for granted, done little, cared little. Would you, Lord Christ, by the power of your spirit, invigorate us, move our hearts to have this ignition of what it means to be the church in these days, in these times, and in these places, through the power of your spirit. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.